tell you what, let's start in prayer tonight, and then we're going to dive in. I believe we got done with Romans 2 while I was gone, right? Okay, so you finally got a teacher that could make some headway. That was good. And uh, we'll dive into Romans 3 tonight. So let's pray real quick, and then we'll get started. Hey, dear Heavenly Father, we just, we come to this moment, and we come to this moment because we absolutely want to know your word. And we're committed, even before hearing it, to obeying it. God, we refuse for this just to be head knowledge. We're committed to the idea that this will be life knowledge and that we will be changed because we've come to understand you and your will more. And so, God, we're just going to lay open hearts tonight. We're going to say, speak to us and teach us. Help me, God, as the teacher, to be as true as possible to your word and to represent you well. And, God, we ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. Romans chapter uh, 3. Now, here's what's happened so far. And if you've been coming, you know that I've been trying to say this over and over again, and you're probably getting a little bit tired of it. But here's here's why this is so critical that you and I understand the conversation that Paul is having with this church in Rome. We're going to get to some highly controversial chapters later on in the book. And I believe that if you and I understand what Paul is talking about and how he's doing the talking, suddenly those chapters which Christians have fought over for 2,000 years become a lot easier to understand if you understand what Paul has done in the previous chapters and how he's worked, okay? So we're going to try to lay that foundation so when we get to the stuff that's a little more confusing and hard, all of a sudden it takes all the clouds away for us, okay? So here's what's happened in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Paul has basically acted as the prosecuting attorney. Remember we told you that a lot of law schools up until 1950s actually used the early chapters of Romans to teach lawyers how to present a case. And Paul has done exactly that. And as he's presented a case for guilt, he's found three groups of people guilty. The first group of people that he found guilty, anybody remember who they were? The heathens. So he says, look, uh, the heathens are in trouble because what they should have been able to see and understand about God simply by looking at creation is that there was someone who was bigger than them, stronger than them, smarter than them. And that information, just that simple logic, should have led them to a place of pursuing God. And instead of doing that, they took that information, pushed it out of their lives, and went after idols instead. And therefore, the heathen are guilty, Paul says. Then he went to the moral. And he said, hey, there are people out there that you know that live really good lives. And you and I as believers would say that's even true of today. There are people who are outside the church, don't have a relationship with God, but they are highly moral people. They're good people. And Paul says, hey, you need to understand that moral people are in trouble. And the reason they're in trouble is because although they've known the good things they could do, they didn't do them all. And if you were to sit down with a moral person and say, hey, have you lived a perfect life? Have you done everything exactly you should do? The moral person would have to admit and say, no, you know, I got to admit, uh, there were some moments of real selfishness in my life. Uh, there were moments when I could have helped and instead I chose not to help. Uh, there were moments I knew the right thing to do and I chose in that moment instead to do the wrong thing. And Paul says, the conscience of the moral person tells them, you haven't done it all. And you're in trouble because nobody has ever been moral enough. 
And at this point, you got to understand, uh, the Jews have been fine. They've said, no, no, I, we get it. We get that the heathens are in trouble and we get that maybe the moral Romans or the, uh, the moral Ephesians, we get that those guys would be in trouble. We get it. We, we understand that. And then Paul turns and he says, at the end of chapter 2, you realize as Jews you're in trouble too. And the Jew says, whoa, wait, 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 wait. Why would we be in trouble? We're the children of God. And Paul says to him, well, wait, wait, wait. By being the children of God, God gave you his laws. And did you obey his laws when he gave them to you? And the Jew in that moment has to answer and say, yeah, no, uh, we really haven't. Uh, we've disobeyed them over and over again. Uh, we've done our very best to skirt them. Um, we've almost been... We've almost been more of a Jew by birth than we have been a Jew by choice. Being Jew has almost been a nationalism type of thing. It hasn't necessarily been a believing type of thing. And Paul says, then you're in trouble. Because you had the very words of God... And you disobeyed him. Matter of fact, Paul goes as far as to say you realize the name of God is being slandered because the heathens are looking at you and saying, look, the very children of God don't keep the law. And Paul concludes chapter 2 by saying you realize you're in just as much trouble as the heathen and as the moralist. All three groups are condemned and found guilty. And thus concludes chapter 2. So here we go. Romans uh, chapter 3. Uh, starting in verse 1. Uh, as Paul takes the Jew and, and takes them to a place of saying, Hey, you guys, you realize you're in trouble. You realize you've, you've had the law and yet you've done your best to skirt around the law. So just to give you a couple examples of some of what was going on. Um, the, the law said, uh, you can, you cannot work on the Sabbath. So the Jewish rulers came back and said, Hey, you realize if you travel more than a certain distance, that would be working because it's no longer a leisurely walk. It's effort for you to do that. And, uh, so they came up with this prescription that said, you can travel about a half a mile from your house on the Sabbath and it won't be work. But anything after a half a mile, well, then you would be working on the Sabbath. So the Jewish people came back to the Jewish teachers and said, well, hey, wait a minute. Uh, what is my house? I mean, what if I'm on a trip and I'm traveling away? And what if I'm staying with a friend? So what would it mean to travel more than a half a mile from my house if I wasn't staying at my house? To which then the Jewish teachers answered this way and said, your house is wherever you took your meal." And the Jewish people said, oh, okay. So here's what they would do on Friday so that they could travel further on Saturday. They would walk out a half a mile from their home. They would put a sack lunch under a rock so that then on the Sabbath they could travel the half a mile to the rock, eat their lunch, and then travel another half a mile because they could only travel a half a mile from where they took their meal. Uh, they went to their Jewish teachers and they said, hey, wait a minute. Uh, we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but what do you do when your cow needs to give milk on the Sabbath? I mean, that's painful for the cow if you don't milk the cow. 
So the Jewish teachers came back and said, okay, it won't be work for you if you spill the milk on the ground. As long as you spill the milk on the ground so that you don't get any profit from the milk, you haven't received anything from it, then it'll be. And so the phrase was, you have to spill the milk on the rocks. And you would understand that if you ever go to Israel, because all of Israel is rocks everywhere you look. So here's what the Jewish people came up with. They would put rocks in the bottom of their milk can. So that on the Sabbath, they could milk the cows, spill the milk on the rocks and keep the milk. Is it any wonder that the heathen looked at the Jews and said, you don't even follow you. Matter of fact, you spend most of your time trying to invent ways around the laws of God and you're supposed to be the children of God. And before you and I get too pious, before you and I go, I just can't imagine what those Jews were doing. I mean, they were the people of God and they had the word of God and here they are trying to avoid and get around. You get that we as Christians do exactly the same thing. That here you and I are the children of God, called out in this world to bring him attention and honor and glory, and yet we spend an inordinate amount of our time trying to get around Scripture. Matter of fact, in any church, uh, the vast majority of believers are what you call selective believers. Which simply means this. They're believers who pick and choose which parts of Scripture they want to obey and which parts of Scripture they choose to disobey. Oh, no, I don't like that God said that about my boyfriend. No, 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 I don't like that God said not to put anything evil before my eyes. I'm going to go to that movie anyways. No, 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 no. Tithe, are you kidding me? And we selective believe and we pick and choose which parts of God's commands we want and which ones we don't. And then we wonder why the heathen aren't attracted to our God. Because they look at you and me and see hypocrites. They see people who are supposed to be the people of God, avoiding the commands of God. And Paul would say to you and me tonight, and you are guilty. Okay, so... That was the heavy part for the night. Uh, All right. So now we get to chapter 3. So we've said the heathen are guilty, the moralist is guilty, but now the Jews are guilty. When the Jews hear this, what do you imagine their reaction is going to be to Paul saying, you are just as bad off as the Gentiles, as the heathens are. You're all guilty before God. How do you think the Jews feel about that? Yeah. Uh, they are about done with Paul already. He's two chapters in, and they're ready to close his book. And Paul knows this. Paul knows that he stepped on toes. He knows that the Jewish element that's in the room hearing his words are going to be deeply offended and deeply bothered, and they've got a whole list of objections to what he said. So Paul's going to do something that he's going to do over and over again in the book of Romans, and he's going to turn his attention to the Jews because he knows that they are his greatest critics in this moment, and he's going to dissect their objections. Okay? And that's what he's getting ready to do at the beginning of chapter 3. So here we go, and understand what he's doing now. He's turning his attention from the full room. He's turning it to the group of Jews sitting in the corner and saying, oh, no, 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 I, I know what you're thinking right now. Let me help you with this. Okay, so here we go. It's Romans chapter three, starting in verse one. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? 
I mean, if I'm a Jew and I'm just as guilty as the heathen, I'm just as guilty as the moralist, what, what good did it do me to be a Jew in the first place? What advantage then is there being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? So wait a minute, I've been trying to honor God. I've had my son circumcised. We've been going to the temple all the time. We've been keeping all of the Jewish feasts. What good is that if I'm just as guilty as the heathens who did none of it? Verse 2. Very much, very much in every way. He's saying, think about this. As a Jew, you've had tons of blessing. You've had tons of advantage. And a matter of fact, the biggest one is probably, you ready? First of all, okay, and in this case when he says first of all, he probably means first and foremost. The biggest one being, uh, <clears throat> first of all, uh, they have been entrusted, you have been entrusted with the very words of God. He says, well, what would you realize? You were given scripture. Every bit of the Old Testament has been handed to you, which gave you a huge advantage over the heathen, over the moral Roman. You guys have had more opportunity than any of them to get this right, simply because you were Jewish. Then they answer and they go, okay, well, what if some didn't have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Okay, so here's what they're saying. All right, wait, wait, wait. Maybe there were some bad Jews. Maybe there were some that didn't really believe. Maybe there were some who didn't really, really follow. Does their, what they did, going to ruin it for the rest of us? Are they going to disqualify the rest of us? Okay. In verse 4, Paul says, not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge, which is a passage written about God. Okay? So here's what he says. He says, look, look, look. So there were some Jews who didn't live the way they were supposed to live. And so you're wondering, well, does their lack of faith mean that all of us got ruined over that? And Paul says, no, 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 not, not a chance. Because God's still going to be faithful to what he promised. And what he promised was not dependent on the Jews doing it right. So God's going to keep his word even if you didn't keep your word. Which, guys, I'm just going to say to you is a huge blessing for us. Because there's times in Scripture where God has promised to take care of us and to provide for us. And that his power was available for us. And isn't it true that the moments we most realize that we need that from God are the moments we've screwed up? The, the moments when we've made a mess. Uh, the, the moments when our finances have gone completely south. The moments when our kids have rebelled like crazy. And we've done some good parenting. We've done some not so good parenting. And in those moments, isn't that the moment you need God to keep his promises? So this is actually a powerful conversation, even though it's directed toward the Jews, for you and I to say, hey, you realize, your messing up doesn't change what God has promised for you. And you can still lean in. And you can still go back and say, God, I, I need your help. I need you now more than I've ever needed you. This isn't good enough for the Jews. And so they're going to come up with the next Put pushback on Paul. You ever been in an argument with somebody who was simply fighting with you to win the argument and not to come to truth? You ever done that? 
You go, wait, wait, wait a minute. Are we, are we arguing to win here or are we arguing to solve something? And this is the point where it's going to kind of step over and the, and he's, the argument's just going to become, hey, I, I, I just want to be honoring. And so here's, here's the next part of the argument. You ready? It's verse 5. But if our unrighteousness... So the Jews are saying, hey, if what we did wrong brings out God's righteousness more clearly. In other words, hey, we blew it. We were unfaithful. We did the wrong thing. But God is now being seen for being such a wonderful God because he's still keeping his promises to us. So doesn't that mean that the bad things we did actually made God look better? Is that an amazing argument? But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. (laughs) Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Some might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some are being slanderously reported as saying, and some claim that we've even said, let us do evil that good may result, their condemnation is deserved. So Paul's saying, look, look, look. If you're going to argue that you blowing it, you not living for God, and now God keeping his promises somehow makes God look better, and that somehow you were doing the will of God by disobeying God, Come on. Come on. And, and if you're going to go live that way, or if you're going to go behave that way, then then your condemnation is deserved. I mean, you, you if you're going to be that silly, then all right. Go ahead. And you get the moment. He knows he's riled the Jews. He knows the Jews are struggling with the idea that they're in just as deep a trouble as the Gentiles. And now they've chipped in to try to win an argument for the winning's sake. And they're no longer seeking the truth. They just want to argue. Verse 9. Because Paul is going to bring this back around for us. What shall we conclude then? Are we, speaking of Jews, okay? Because remember, Paul is a Jew. Matter of fact, uh, he was a member of what group? The Pharisees, and beyond just simply being, and here's what, guys, Pharisee, we've, in our, in our Western culture, have turned Pharisee into a hypocrite. And part of that is because how Jesus talked to the Pharisees. But what you need to know is that the Pharisees were actually the conservatives of their day. Uh, they were the ones most worried about the law. They were the ones most trying to get everyone to keep the law. Uh, they were the orthodox of the Jews. And uh, it's the, the problem that Jesus has with the Pharisees is not that they didn't know their Bibles or not that they weren't doing their Bibles. The problem Jesus has with the Pharisees is that they're doing their Bibles for show and they aren't doing their Bibles from their hearts. Okay, and that's why Jesus calls them hypocrites. Not because they were living horrible lifestyles, because they were pretending and their hearts weren't in it. Okay. So he's a Pharisee, and then he's also a member of what ruling group of the Jews? Anybody know? The Sanhedrin, which would have been the 40 most accomplished scholars within the Jewish community. 
So Paul is no scruff. Uh, Paul has been highly recognized for his knowledge of Scripture and for his dedication to God. Okay? Matter of fact, he was so dedicated to the Jewish way of life that he spent his early part of his life doing what to Christians? Killing them because he believed Christians were a cult. Okay? So, when he says, what shall we conclude then? He has every right to say that because he's a Jew of the Jews. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? And here's his answer. Not at all. We may have had greater advantage. We may have had more opportunity being Jews. But at the end of the day, we defied God too. The heathen disobeyed. The moralists disobeyed. And those of us who call ourselves the children of God disobeyed. We are no better. This is the judge's gavel coming down. Guilty. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Okay, what is sin? Hmm. What is sin? Okay, microphone runners, here we go. We're going to define sin real quick. We don't really want your answer, so we didn't turn the microphone on. Turn the microphone on. Hello? Yeah. Transgression of the law. Transgressing the law, okay. What else? How else would you define sin? Uh, Acting independently of God's will. Acting independently of God's will. Okay, keep going. Here's the deal. What you're saying right now is true. We're going to tighten it up. Disobedience. Disobedience. Can I sin while being obedient? Isn't that an interesting question? Could I sin while being obedient? There you go. In the back. Selfish desire. Selfish desire. I like that. Anything that keeps your eyes off of Christ. Anything that what? Takes your eyes off of Christ. Anything that takes our eyes off of Christ. Going your own way. What, 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 what? Going your own way. Going your own way. Missing the mark. Missing the mark. Doing what God says not to do. Okay, but let's go back. All right, so let's answer this question. Could I be sinning while I'm obeying? Isn't that a great question? Could I be sinning while obeying? The sins of omission and commission. Okay, there are sins of omission and commission. All right, but if I'm if I'm obeying, could I be sinning? How? Give me an example of how I could be obeying and sinning. There you go. Which wasn't that the problem with the Pharisees? So here, here's here's one for you. Uh, offering plates being passed. And the offering plate gets to the person next to me, and now I got to make a big deal, get my 
wallet out and I get out thumbing through and I find a hundred dollar bill and I pull it out real high so the people near me can kind of see it going in. I was obeying, but what was my motive? Hmm. So I could obey and actually be sinning. Let me ask you this. So, right, so let me give you the definition of sin, and then we're going to hang on this for a minute. The, the definition, the scriptural definition of sin is falling short. Or we also said it, missing the mark. And let me tell you why this is, this is so important that we kind of get to this place with sin. Because this helps us with the idea that says, I could be doing the right thing the wrong way. And it would be sinful. See, I could be dropping my money in the offering plate, but wanting doing it for attention. And that would actually be sin. Here, here's what I'm just going to toss out there. I'll, I'll leave it with you to kind of ponder a little bit tonight and think about. You realize when we were baby Christians that the vast majority of us, when we came to Jesus, we came to Jesus hoping to get something from him. Hey, maybe if I'll follow Jesus, he'll make my marriage better. Hey, maybe if I follow Jesus, he'll help with my finances. If you're following Jesus so you can get something from him, is that really pure motives? And wouldn't that be falling short of the right reason to follow him? Because wouldn't the right reason to follow Jesus simply be because he's God and I'm not? He's Lord and I'm his servant. And, and even if he never gave me anything, he'd still be Lord and I'd still be his servant. So if the reason I follow Jesus is so I can get something from him, would those be pure motives? I get it, and, and, and if you're young in the Lord, I'm not, I'm not trying to beat you up on this. And here's the truth. Following Jesus is the most amazing thing that's ever going to happen in your life. And the cool part about God is, is that he does bless us like crazy for following him. It just can't be the reason we follow him. Because if following him is about what I get for me, then my motives would actually be Sinful. And I would actually be falling short of true obedience. Okay, got a question. Yep. Uh, what if the reason you're following Jesus is for redemption? Say it. What if it's not for anything selfish like money or finances, if it's just for redemption? Yeah, well, here, here's what I would say is that as best I understand Scripture, the moment I become a Christian, he redeems me. He buys me. That's done. I don't need to do anything to keep that redemption going. It's a one and done thing. Now, I think it's a great thing if you say, because he bought me, because he rescued me, I want to say thank you. Well, then that's a great reason. That's a great reason to follow Jesus. Thank you is always a good reason to follow Jesus. But, it's, but me doing good things does nothing to redeem me. 
Matter of fact, we're going to get into that in the passage in just a few minutes. He's going to say, hey, there's no such thing as good works helping to get you to heaven. Jesus gets you to heaven. What else? What other questions? Okay, we got one here. The only thing I have to ask is I'm wondering if they went half a mile to get a lunch and another half a mile the next day. They had to take a whole mile to get back. Did anybody think about that? You're, you're still worried about those Jews and their sack I lunch, aren't you? That's bothering know. you. I gotta know. <laughs> How'd they think they were gonna get away with that? Well, I, I, I think they were waiting until Sunday to travel the rest of the way home. Another week? Yeah, they had to wait till Sunday, so they'd get out of Saturday and into Sunday, and then they could walk all they wanted. But uh, I love that that's bothering you. That's so cool. You're going to be thinking about that the rest of the week. Like, what in the world were they thinking? They got a mile from home, and they were stuck. Yeah, okay. Could you be obeying while sinning? Could you be obeying while sinning? I don't, I don't think that's possible. Um, you know, I, th- I think when, once you flip those words, and I love the question, it's a great question, but I think, I, I, here's why, Bible says God cannot sin, nor does he tempt men or ask men to sin. So I don't know that there's a moment in which your, your sin and my sin is in any way obedience to God. Does that make sense? So I think once you flip those words and say, hey, can I be can I be sinning and yet obeying God? I, I don't think you can turn it that way and, and have it still work. God's never going to ask you. So here, here's some guy comes up to you and says, hey, I've been praying and God told me to leave my wife. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. You can't sin and be obeying God. You, you can't. God told me to lie. No, he didn't. He didn't tell you to lie. There's no way. You cannot sin and be obeying God, okay? So you just better go back and pray some more, okay? Or buy a new Bible, one of the two, because there's no way God told you that, okay? And so I, I don't think you can flip the words. Yep? What about in the instance of war, if you're killing? Yeah, so war is something, and, and, all right, so how many people are interested? It'll take me like two minutes to explain this. How many people want to hear the two-minute explanation? All right, all right, so it's worth it. Okay. <clears throat> There is no place in the Bible where it says, do not go to war. Matter of fact, over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, God says, go kill them. Go to war. So it's a misunderstanding to say that war is in of itself evil. I'm going to argue right now, guys, and, you know, whatever this is, I'm going to argue the best thing America ever did was get into World War II. We stopped an absolutely evil group of men from doing unbelievably evil things and lots of people died innocent people died but i don't think there was anything immoral about that so here's the here's where we get confused god says to you and me as individuals you and i as individuals do not have the right to take a life for our own purpose you cannot serve as the judge you cannot decide that she can't live you can't decide that he can't live and then take matters into your own hands that bible calls that murder okay and you cannot do that you you were never given that authority to make that decision as an individual but he does give to governments the right to be able to number 1 wage war 
and to exact the death penalty. Okay? And in that case, it's not murder because it's not an individual saying, you're not worth living, I'm going to take your life. Governments have that authority. It's a God, matter of fact, it's a God-given responsibility. Matter of fact, there are certain sins in the Bible that are so dark, so horrific, that the Bible says to governments, don't allow that type of person to stay in your culture. Because if you allow that type of person to be there, it's only going to bring harm. Either they're going to continue to hurt other people the same way, or they're going to convince other people to join them in their darkness. And so don't allow that type of person to even live. And so God then commands and gives the authority to governments for the death penalty and also to wage war. Okay? Now, you and I have every right in a moment when our government, especially as Americans, would make a decision about war that we would say, God, whoa, 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 whoa. This doesn't look moral to us in any way. We can't see any righteous purpose for what's going on. But it's not war that would have been evil. It would have been the motives for going to war that would have been inappropriate. Does that make sense? So, um, whatever side you're on on this, um, I'm not going to tell you what side I was on. Uh, when we went to Iraq, you and I as Americans had every right to either question that or affirm that. We had every right to do that. But the government wasn't sinning by declaring war. But you and I had every right to challenge motives if we wanted to. Yep. Okay, so this is very simplistic compared to the, the war question, but your wife makes you something brand new for dinner, and it's just awful. Yes. Has never happened, by Has the way. Has never happened as far as we all know. Okay, I just sinned. All right. So, so you, so you I know lied. where I'm going with this. All right. Matter of fact, wait, wait, so, well, I didn't hear it. I was goofing around. That was really the question. How do you handle that without... Telling a little white lie, honey, it was great. Or, oh, yo, uh, there you go. Okay, well, that outfit there you looks go. Great. Okay, so let, let me say this out loud, guys. Let me let me say this out loud. We're, I'm going to get a whole bunch of people in trouble, but then we're going to get healthier. Okay, I'm going to get a bunch of people in trouble. Ladies, do not, do not, do not, do not, do not put your man in a position where he needs to tell you a white lie. I mean, how dumb is that? Does this dress make me look fat? I mean, ladies, if you don't want the answer, don't ask the question. I'm just saying, right? And and you can't be angry at him if he gives you an honest answer. Because here's the thing. Don't you want an honest answer from him on every other question? So why are you going to promote him curb? Because here's what he's going to do. When he flirts with the secretary, says, I'm not going to tell the, my wife I flirted with the secretary because they'll just hurt her feelings. She doesn't need to know. When do you want him to stop telling white lies? The answer is you never want him to start. Here's what I'm just going to say. It is never right to do wrong, which includes white lies, which includes telling your kid to tell the advertising person you just called on the phone, mommy and daddy aren't home. It is never right to do wrong, even if you're trying to accomplish something good. It is never right to do wrong. Even if you're trying to do something right. You and I are called to always do right. No matter what the cost. And ladies are going, what? What? That's a bad answer, Lynn. Okay, yep. 
I do think, though, I, I agree with you. I do think, though, that um, there's a certain amount of diplomacy. Sure. And, um, uh, care that needs to be taken in. Absolutely. So that you're not hurting someone's feelings. If you're going to tell them the truth, it needs to be done in such a way that it's done gently. and, and Absolutely. Applied. So, guys, you can try this one next time. Uh, when she asks you, does this dress make me look fat? You go, you know, it's not as slimming as some of the other ones. Yeah. Huh? It's not, oh, no, you don't say that. Do you hear what he said? You could say it's not the dress. But you, yeah, you're in trouble, dude. All right. You're going to sit in the back row next week. Uh, but no, hey, guys, well, you know what? And here's the thing I'm just going to tell you. You know, what, you know what a lie is? A lie is a lazy man's excuse. What you're telling me is you don't know how to tell the truth. And I know the truth is sometimes harder to tell and sometimes it costs you more to tell. But true to what she just said, there's ways to tell the truth that aren't hurtful, right? That you've done your very best to, well, and maybe it is, I take that back. There's times you tell the truth it is hurtful. But if you can season it in as much grace as possible while you do it, that's a, that's a good thing. It's a good thing to season the truth with some grace and eloquence. It is. But you don't tell a lie. You don't cheat. Now, guys, I'm, not gonna, I'm the guy, just so you know, I'm the guy who sits at the stoplight when all of you are making left-hand turns after it turns red, and I wish I had a paint gun to shoot your car. I just do. I'm going, that's wrong. That's wrong. You shouldn't be doing it, especially not with the cornerstone bumper sticker on your car. You shouldn't be doing it. I'm telling you. Yeah, right there. I just wanted to say that um, in the in the word, many times God had entire nations, the tribes wiped out because yeah. of their sin yeah. in their lives, because they just keep passing it on a generation, generation. Yeah. He just wiped them out. Yeah. So and I o- think that that's over, right. Yeah. Over and over again, you'll see. Wish we God. could do it today. What? What now? Wish we could do it today. <laughs> Wish you could do it today. Yeah. Well, if we had a theocracy, we would probably take a shot at that. But uh, we have a democracy, and so it doesn't work as well. But no, here, here's what I was going to say, guys. War, back to the original question, war is not evil, murder is. It's evil because you and I as individuals don't have the authority to take another person's life, save for what excuse? Biblically? Self-defense. Scripture is very clear that says if someone comes and in order to spare your life or the life of a loved one, you have every right in self-defense to take a life. They are not guilty in that case. Scripture is very clear about it. You wonder where we got a lot of our laws that we have as a nation that right now we're kind of tweaking and changing. But you know where we got them originally? Right there. Our forefathers used Scripture to write most of our laws. So it's okay to take a life in self-defense. It's not okay to murder. Yep. Um, I have a question in reference to a story in the Old Testament. Oh, I knew you were going to do that. Okay. Good for you. I believe it's the prostitutes. Yes. The three men that she hid and she lied. She lied. And safety and, but God blessed her yep. because of that. So I guess I'm just trying to tie that in. Right. So here's, here's what I'm going to say. Okay. What you're supposed to know when, and I love it. Okay, so here's the story she's quote, she's uh, referring to. It's actually Rahab, and the spies have gone into Jericho to spy out Jericho. Uh, she is putting her lot in with God. In other words, she's figured out, hey, the Jews have God with them, 
and all of us in Jericho who are worshiping idols, we don't, and we're in trouble. And she decides to side with the people of God, okay? So she takes the spies in and hides them in her house. When the guards come to find the spies, she lowers them down uh, out her back window, out the wall, outside, because her house happened to be on the outside wall of the city, lowers them down and they go free. When the guards come, they say to Rahab, hey, do you know where those Jewish spies are? She says, no, I've never seen them. Okay. Here's what you're supposed to know in the story. Uh, God's already said in the Ten Commandments, thou shall not bear what? False witness. So you're supposed to know unequivocally that what Rahab did was... You are... Oh, okay. You are supposed to know unequivocally that what Rahab just did was wrong. Okay? That she wasn't supposed to lie, but... If we're going to put this in modern terms, how long has Rahab been a God believer, a God follower? How long? About a day and a half, which would qualify her as a baby. Okay. If we, she's not a Christian because she doesn't even know Christ is coming yet, but we'll call her a baby Christian. Okay. She's, she's a day and a half into her faith journey. Are you shocked that when the guards come, Rahab says, I haven't seen them. No. And so God is not justifying her lie. God's not saying it's okay that she lied. He's not doing that on any way. But what he is saying is at least good for her, she threw her lot in with God. How many of you look back at when you were a baby Christian? And remember, you were coming to church and you were serving in Sunday school. And then on Saturday night, you were watching something on TV. You had no business watching on TV. Right? Did what you watched on TV because you were actually coming to church on Sunday make what you watched on TV on Saturday okay? Hello? Yes? No? Come on, this is an easy question. No. So does Rahab's lie okay because she was doing a good thing? No. We're all supposed to understand there was a better way for her to do this. She just, as a young believer, didn't pick the best way. A better example is if you go to Daniel. Here's Daniel. He's been commanded by the king not to pray to any other god other than the king. Because remember in these times, like in Egypt and in Babylon, they would declare that their kings were gods. And so the law goes out that cannot be changed. You must pray to the king for the next 50 days. Now, David was in the habit of going out on his porch, okay, in this heathen country that had enslaved him. And getting down on his knees publicly and praying to God. Matter of fact, the reason the law had been enacted is because some men that were jealous... I'm sorry, I said David, didn't I? Daniel, I'm sorry. How did I do that? Two Ds, all right. So it's Daniel. And some men who were jealous of Daniel got the king to make the law because they knew Daniel had too much integrity not to pray. And so when the law was passed... Think about this. Think about how easy this would have been for Daniel to say, you know what? I'll still pray to God, but today I'm not going to go on the porch and I'll just close the shutters to my room and I'll just pray in private. And Daniel said, you know what? That would tell all of those who oppose God that at the very least, I am more fearful of the king than I am of my God. And that I have more respect for the king than I do for my God. 
And so he chose in that moment to do the right thing, which was to go right back on that balcony, get down on his knees and pray. And here's what he knew. He knew the moment he did it, he was headed to the lion's den because Daniel knew it's never right to do a wrong thing, even if you're trying to do a right thing. Anybody remember what happened in the the lion's den? Yeah. A God who was bigger than the king and a God who was stronger than the lions closed the lion's mouth. Which is what happens often. I can't say every time because some people have been lost their lives doing the right thing. But it's what God often does for the saints who do the right thing when it's really hard to do the right thing. And choose not to do the wrong thing because it was more convenient or easier for them. Okay, we got to keep going because you guys are like, wow. God, ah. All right, real quick. Can you hear me? Be, yep. How many sins do I have to commit to be considered sinful? How many sins what? How many angels can sit on the pin of a needle? What? What? Is, say it again. How many sins do I have to commit to be considered sinful? <laughs> How many sins do you have to commit in order to be sinful? I love that question. Because the very definition of sin is what? Falling short. If you're going to stand before a holy God and claim holiness, righteousness, how many sins would keep you from being holy? One. One. Matter of fact, we're going to get into that in just a minute. Just one. One makes you guilty. One is too many. It's why the moral person doesn't go to heaven being moral. Because even the moral person has committed at least one sin. All right. Earlier you mentioned there were certain things you could do in war that were acceptable. Um, Getting back to the uh, situation with Rahab. Yeah. um, You're not going to let me get out of Rahab, huh? Well, if you're a soldier and you're captured... And you give false information to the enemy to protect uh, your people. Um, wouldn't that be a, a, an acceptable acceptable because of the situation you're in and yeah. so forth? So here, here's the question. Then we're going to move on. Okay, I'm going to answer yours real quick, and then we're going to move on. Okay, because some people want to get through this. All right. So the question was: If you were an, a soldier and you were captured by the enemy, and now they're torturing you. Would lying in that situation, giving them false information in that situation, would that be sinful? And here's what I'm going to tell you. I don't know. Okay? And here's why I don't know, and here's why I'm not sure on that. Because in the situation, if they're torturing you to get the information, I don't believe they have any right to, to, to count on truthfulness. Does that make sense? So I, I don't know if in that situation God would say, when you're being tortured... You, you know, you have to, t- I, I don't know. I, I don't know that answer. And, and I, I would never judge anybody who was in that situation and said, I'm going to choose to give false information. I, I would not throw a single rock because there's part of me that would say, the minute you torture me, you've lost the right to expect truthfulness. Does that make sense? But what I would say on the other side of it is short of torture, which I have never experienced, and I don't think any of us in this room have, the line is truth, right? Because everybody should be able to expect truthfulness from a child of God. 
They have every right to expect truthfulness from you. Right? Okay. All right. Back to chapter 3. Here we go. Uh, what shall we conclude then? This is verse 9. What are we doing on time? Ten minutes. All right. We, we, here we go. Uh, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Talking to the Jews. The answer was not at all. We have already made the charge that the Jews and the Gentiles are, next word, all under sin. Every one of us, whether you were a heathen, whether you were a moralist, or whether you were a Jew, has fallen short of the mark. None of us has been perfect. And the reality is, if you're going to stand in front of a perfect God and say to him, I deserve heaven, then the measure is perfect. Holiness. And how many sins are too many? It was a great question. One. One. Okay, I've used this illustration before. I'm going to use it again real quickly just to kind of get the point across. You come to my house and uh, you're a guest and I sit, we sit down to a dinner together and I say to you, hey, you know what, before we eat together, I should probably tell you something just so that you have full disclosure. Uh, my plumbing's not working right now. My water uh, had to be shut off because the plumber's working on some stuff. So in order to serve you water tonight, I simply went to my toilet and dipped some water out of my toilet and that's what's in your drinking glass. To which you would probably say to me, uh, thanks, but no thanks. And then I say to you, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm pretty offended that you won't drink my water. Uh, here's what I did. I made sure when I took the water out, I took a t-shirt and I kind of, you know, screened for stuff. And, uh, I was, I was a generous host. I made sure if I could see anything in the cups, that's in my cup. I gave you the cup I couldn't see anything in. So I'm pretty bothered you won't drink my water. And you would say to me, you are insane. Because here's the deal. For water to be dirty, you don't have to see it. For water to be dirty, there just has to be something in there that's not good. And there you got God's answer. See, God says to you and me when we all come and say, oh, I'm such a good person. And you go, what are you talking about, good person? Well, I don't have any chunks. I'm pretty good. And God goes, no, you don't get it. For you not to be pure simply means you have to have something in there that's not good. And if you wouldn't drink dirty water, why do you ask God to drink an unholy life? Because I'm just telling you the ramifications of a holy God accepting unholiness are far greater than you drinking a dirty cup of water. And so the answer is one is too many. As a matter of fact, that's, that's where Paul's going to take us. One is too many. Which is why there had to be a Savior. Because the problem that we all had, all of us, remember, all of us were under sin, none of us was going to be able to fix because none of us could be that pure. And all of us were in trouble. All right, back to verse 11. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. What do you think Paul means when he says, hey, wait, there's no one who seeks God? Because here, think about this for a second. Think of all the false religions out there. How would you have all those false religions if people weren't seeking God? So what do you think Paul says means when he says, hey, there's no one who actually seeks God? Here's what I think he's saying. There's no one who actually seeks God just because he's God. That all of us in our humanness, and we've talked about this a little bit already tonight, 
Seek God for what we can get from him. See, if you follow my rules, you can earn heaven. Hey, if you follow my rules, God will have to bless you. If you do this, you'll be better than your neighbor. And Paul's just saying, you realize all of those are selfish motives. No one really seeks God just because he's God. They always, we always seek for what we can get and what we receive or hope to receive when we find him. No one's doing this with pure motives. Verse 12, all have turned away. They become together, become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And again, you go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I saw a Cub Scout help a little old lady across the street. I saw someone take dinners to their neighbor. What do you mean no one does good? What do you think he's saying? What's he saying? Huh? No one's without sin. But why is it when we even look at some of the good things that go on that he, Paul is saying, hey, you know what? The truth is they're, they're not good, good. Huh? Because there's other motives. See, I'm going to do this so they like me. I'm going to do this so they think I'm a good person. I'm going to do this so that someone notices. And Paul says, when you get right down to it, even the things we call good, if we were super, super honest, often have very selfish motives. Total depravity. Yeah. Huh? Okay, so here we go. I couldn't hear the question, so give him the mic. The question is, what is Paul doing? What is his motive? What is his motive? <laughs> he just likes beating people up, I think. But <laughs> no, I you know, I think Paul I think Paul is and I and here's what here's where Paul's talking, so you understand what he's doing in this moment. He's talking about unregenerated men and women. He's talking about men and women who have not encountered God yet and haven't had the work of the Holy Spirit in them yet. So he's talking about people who are pre-Jesus, pre-the cross. That's, that's where his focus is on this, if that helps at all. Because here's, here's what I would say. I would hope that as you and I grow in maturity as Christians that there are moments in which we simply do what Jesus asked us to do, not because we agreed or not because we liked it, but because we simply said, he's Lord. And I will simply obey him because he's Lord. And I think it's possible for a regenerated person, a person who's come to Christ, to do things for the glory of God without selfishness involved, right? But that's, that's a process of maturity in our lives. Because the truth is, as baby Christians, we're probably still being kind of selfish. And part of this, remember... Paul's going to say to us, every single day I figure out how to die to myself. I figure out how to take that old selfish man and kill him every day so that I could live righteously for God. And hopefully in maturity, we do get to the point where we actually do things for the right reason. And we have pure motives in our lives. But Paul is focused right now on people who have not come to the cross yet. And he's saying, even their good things, they do... And maybe not every time, right? I don't think he's necessarily saying every time. I'm just, I think he's saying they, they can't, you can't put it all in a good basket because there's too much of it that has selfish motives in it. I think there's times when a mother helps a child and there's no selfishness there. I think there's moments when someone helps somebody in need and there's no selfishness there. He's just saying when you sum it all up, when you put all those things that looked good into a basket, 
boy, you start unraveling a bunch of selfish, self-seeking motives in the middle of it. And so the basket's not good. Okay. Great question. All right. Verse 13. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. A big word for lies. The poison of vipers is on their lips. We think it means when it says the poison of vipers is on their lips. When is poison on our lips? When we gossip? When we say cruel things about other people? When we're hurtful with our words? Verse 14, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Uh, Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What's the fear of God? What's the fear of God? Reverence? The beginning of wisdom. Thank you. Quoted a Bible verse on me. But that really does say that. Isn't that interesting? The Bible does say the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Isn't that interesting? And here's the thing that's interesting in the room is that we're struggling to even define the fear of God. And yet scripture says the fear of God is the very beginning of wisdom. Amen. Yeah. Right. No, there, so there is. There's a, he's saying, hey, there, God's got power and control over something that's much more important than just your life. You ought to be fearing God. You know, when, if you have to make a choice, do I honor a man or do I honor God? I better choose God because he's the bigger one to fear. All right, let me throw this out to you. We'll finish with this one tonight. It's a good place for us to end. Um, and I love the verse that you quoted. I gave you a hard time about it, but I, I love that you quoted it because it's a really powerful verse. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Here's why I think this is really important for us to hear. Because over and over and over again in Scripture, the Bible says if you want to understand your relationship with God, He's your Father, you are His children. Now it says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So I think what we're about to say to each other is actually a great parenting lesson too. I think this is an, an absolutely applicable if you're raising kids right now to understand what we're about to say. So I think there's two ways in which we're to fear God. One is the fear of discipline. Okay? In other words, you and I ought to be able to say, hey, you know what? I'm not going to disobey that scripture. I'm not going to do that thing that I know is wrong because Hebrew says everyone that God counts as a son or a daughter, he spanks. Matter of fact, if you're in this room tonight and you say, hey, I'm a Christian, but God doesn't spank you, I think you ought to go back and make sure you've actually made a decision for Christ. Because the Bible says every single child that he counts as one of his, he spanks him. And the beginning of the fear of God is this fear of discipline. I'm not going to do that because God, God might spank me for doing it. Parents, I'm, I'm going to tell you, and before you get all mad, I'm going to tell you, I think it's okay to spank your child. Now you're going to freak out on because you, your view of spanking is that's when mom gets really angry, her blood vessels pop out, her eyes bulge, and then, you know, she's screaming like a loony maniac. No, 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 no. That's not spanking. That's vengeance. 
You understand the difference. But it's okay for your two-year-old who's trying to put their hand on the plug to swat their hand. It's okay. Matter of fact, it's a blessing. And the truth is, if you try to explain to a two-year-old the, the concept of electricity, you're in trouble. Okay? It's not an effective parenting method. And where you begin with a child is, it's the fear of discipline. And I'm just going to tell you, there's going to be a hundred times where it's going to serve you when that little child's getting ready to run in the street and you say, no, you want that child to fear the spanking more than they fear the street. Okay. So the beginning is discipline. The second fear of God, I believe is the fear of disappointment. And this is a great way for you to measure your spiritual maturity, because when you look at something that's wrong and you don't want, and you want to do it in your heart, and then you decide not to do it. Why did you decide not to do it? Did you decide not to do it because God might spank you? Or did you decide not to do that sin because it might hurt the heart of God and disappoint Him? You realize that's a totally different answer, right? I, 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 I wanted to lie. I had a moment I wanted to lie. But I chose not to lie. Well, why did you choose not to lie? Well, I thought God would spank me. Okay, 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 that's that's a great answer. But you realize that's a young Christian answer. That's a baby Christian answer. That's the beginning of wisdom, fear of discipline. You realize it's a much better answer to say, you know why I didn't do that sin? You know why I didn't sleep with my boyfriend? Because I knew it would hurt God's heart. It wasn't about whether I was going to get a spanking. I just didn't want to disappoint my heavenly father. Parents, this is a great next thing as you're raising children, is that there's going to come a point when they're 9 or 10, and your little swat on the rump isn't going to mean anything. And you better before then have won their hearts. Which means when they begin to make mistakes and begin to do things that they're not supposed to do as children, you've got to begin to go and say to them, hey, I want you to know I'm disappointed. I want you to know it hurts my heart that you would do that. And the fear you want to instill in them is the fear of disappointing mom and dad. Because when your little daughter is 16 years old and she's in the backseat with that boyfriend and he's saying, I love you and if you love me, you will, you need her to say no. And you don't need her to say no because she thinks you're going to give her a spanking. You need her to say no because she says to that boyfriend, I can't. It would break my dad's heart. It's the fear of disappointment. Okay? And the final one, is the desire to please. If you can get a child to the place where they say, you know what, you know how I make my decisions? I make my decisions because I want my parents to be proud of me. I choose my friends because I want my parents to be proud of me. I choose how I behave because I want my parents to be proud of me. I have my work ethic because I want my parents to be proud of me. That's a very mature place to be. And it's an amazing place to be as a Christian. If you can say, I make my decisions for Christ, not because I fear a spanking, not because I fear disappointing God. I make my decisions because I want to please God. Because you realize this, this one has everything to do with, whoops, whoops, how come it's erasing? This one has, all right, the fear of disappointment has everything to do with the things I don't do, right? I don't do that because I don't want to disappoint God. But when you get to the desire to please, it starts causing you to do things simply because you want God to smile. That's a powerful place to be as a Christian. I went on that missions trip because I thought it would thrill the heart of God. I served in children's because I thought it would thrill the heart of God. Not because I thought he'd spank me if I didn't go. I did it so I'd thrill his heart. 
It's a great place to be as a Christian. It's a great place to have your kids when you parent. Okay? All right, we're done. Let's close in prayer. I know you guys have kids to pick up. Hey, dear Assembly Father, thank you. Thank you for tonight. Thanks for a chance to get in your word and to study and to learn together. And God, again, I just ask that we would take this and use it in our lives and would be changed for the time we spent together. And uh, God, we just, we love you. And that's why we took the time to be here tonight. And this we say in Jesus' name, amen. All right, hey, I'm going to hang around the front. If you got questions, I'll be here.